Let's start this morning by just getting a running head start to where we are in John chapter 9. We, we covered the first seven verses last Sunday. We'll dive in at the eighth verse, but let's just kind of recap the whole chapter, where we are, just getting back into the flow. John 9 verse 1, we read that now as Jesus passed by, he saw a man who was blind from birth. And his disciples said to him, Rabbi, who sinned? This man or his parents that he was born blind. And Jesus answered, neither this man nor his parents sinned, but that the works of God should be revealed in him. I must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. The night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. And when Jesus had said these things, he spat on the ground and made clay with saliva. And he anointed the eyes of the blind man with clay. And Jesus said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which is translated sent. So the man went and washed and came back seeing. Now before we dive back into the flow of our story, there's one additional idea or concept, observation, so to speak, that piggybacks off of last Sunday's study. And it kind of begins with a question. When was the man healed of his blindness? Was he healed the moment Jesus finished applying the clay to his eyes? Or was he healed the moment he obeyed Jesus' command and went to the pool of Siloam and washed the mud off his eyes? Now, obviously, the passage doesn't really tell us one way or the other. But I am of the opinion that the man's willingness to obey served to reveal a work that Jesus had already accomplished in his life. And that seems to be consistent with what we know of Jesus. To this point, I do not believe the man's healing required or demanded his specific involvement. Now, that's not to say that the man's obedience wasn't important. Oh, it was. Though grace, what we would call God's unmerited blessings, his favor, doesn't necessitate your obedience as it's fundamentally a work God does on your behalf. Obedience is important because it expedites your ability to see the manifestation of grace well quicker than you would otherwise. Think about it this way. When you stubbornly refuse to obey Jesus' word, are you restricting the blessings of God as if God pulls them back from you? Or... Are you simply through disobedience prolonging your ability to enjoy them, to see them manifest? I think the Bible is actually clear that disobedience limits your capacity to enjoy the incredible blessings you've already been given in Jesus Christ. And I think I can substantiate that idea. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, Paul writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing, not just on earth, but in the heavenly places in Christ. Now, in using this past tense, that Jesus Christ has blessed us, Paul is clear of what? He's clear that through Jesus and his grace, you, my friend, have been given it all. Literally, Paul is saying, when you give your life to Jesus, when you accept the work that he did on your behalf, a work you could never do, 
You are given in that moment every, not some, not a partial helping, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And I should remind you that you don't earn these things any more than you deserve them, nor are any of these things predicated, according to Paul in Ephesians 1.3, on your obedience. Instead, it's your willingness to walk in obedience to Jesus' word that you come to obtain, to experience all that you've already been given. This blind man was healed by Jesus. No question about it. Nothing he could have done could have contributed to the miracle. And yet, it was absolutely necessary this man obeyed Jesus' command to go and wash. Why? So that he could realize the healing that had taken place. I don't want to beat this point into the ground other than just to say, to ask, how many of us are walking around this morning with mud caked to our face, failing to enjoy all the life that God has for us for one reason. We're unwilling to obey His simple commands. John says, after the man went and washed, as Jesus had instructed, he came back to the location, the scene of the crime, we're told, seeing. Now for a little context, it's going to become evident that while the man who had been healed of his blindness returned to the location... Jesus has already left the scene. Therefore, John chapter 9, verse 8, or as a result of the miracle, the healing, the neighbors. So the man returns and the neighbors who had previously seen that he was blind said, is this not he who sat and begged? Well, some said, this is he. Others said he is like him. The man said, I am he. Now, upon the man's return to his familiar setting along Beggar's Row, confusion ensues among the locals. Some of the crowd immediately recognize the man, the fact that he was blind, but now he could see. They recognize what happened. This is the man. Wow. Others, though, find the reality of his blindness, the fact that it had been replaced with sight, as being so hard to accept, they start to kind of question whether or not that was even the same man. So some are like, yeah, wow, look at that guy. He was blind. Now he sees. And others are like, there's no way a blind man can see. So this is just a case of mistaken identity. This can't be the same man, they reason. But the man, again, he's like, yeah, I am he. He affirms his identity. Therefore, verse 10, they said to him, how? Were your eyes opened? And on a side note, that is a logical question to ask. All things considered. So the man answered and said, A man called Jesus made clay and anointed my eyes and said to me, Go to the pool of Siloam and wash. The man recounting his experiences said, So I I went and washed and I received sight. So they said to him, Where is he? Also an entirely logical question. But he replied, I do not know. 
When asked how his eyes had been opened, the man has no idea. So he replies with a who. They want to know how, and he replies with a who. He has no clue the mechanism of the healing or how the mud and the clay and the saliva and all that work. But he didn't know the culprit. The culprit had been a man, he says, called Jesus. I point this out to emphasize how very little the man actually knew of Jesus before his encounter. Like at this moment, at this point in our story, and we're going to see a progression here. But at this point, he doesn't know who Jesus really was. And not only that, he, he refuses even in this moment to speculate. How can you see? I have no idea, but I'll tell you who gave me sight. This man named Jesus. All I know is his name. Get anything more? Nope. I've never even seen him. I just know his name. Verse 13, they, and, and in context this would be these neighbors, brought the man who was formerly blind to the Pharisees. It's likely they, they brought him into the temple precincts to be officially examined, the healing. John then tells us that it was a Sabbath when Jesus made the clay and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees asked him again how he received his sight. And he said to them, he put clay on my eyes and I washed and I see. Now, without boring you concerning all the non-scriptural laws and traditions that these religious leaders had created in order to define what constituted work on the Sabbath day, note that almost every aspect of the miracle of healing the blind man violated their traditions, the minutia of their traditions, in some way or form. And in fact, the case can be made that Jesus healed the man in such a bizarre way intentionally to break their petty Sabbath traditions. Quoting David Guzik, quoting Bruce, one of the categories of work specifically forbidden on the Sabbath in the tradition interpretation of the law was kneading and making of mud or clay with such simple ingredients as earth and saliva was construed as a form of kneading. So, in making the clay by spitting into the dirt, Jesus was violating their Sabbath traditions. Therefore, verse 16, some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God, because he does not keep the Sabbath. Others said, How can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. This word division, it describes literally a schism or a tearing apart. And they said to the blind man again, what do you say about him? Because he opened your eyes. So the man replied, he is a prophet. Now we've mentioned this before, but the accusation here that Jesus, quote, did not keep the Sabbath was simply false. Never once, friend, did Jesus ever violate the Sabbath law as God instituted Rather, it was only the man-made traditions created by the religious establishment that Jesus gave no mind to. In fact, it was entirely within Jesus' right as God to work on the Sabbath as he's done since the eighth day. Now, the argument 
by more fair-minded of the Pharisees, asking this question, how can a sinner, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs, is, is telling for what will follow. Clearly, while a group of Pharisees will do everything in their power to resist and seek to even discredit what had occurred, the evidence of a miracle was undeniable. It's what the core you know, discussion, argument of the Pharisees was. This man can't be from God because he violates the traditions. And the other side's like, okay, we get you, but the dude just healed a blind man. He's right in front of us. Like, how do we deny that? And they're arguing back and forth on this point. And there was this schism, this tearing apart of the two. Note, the miracle of a life that had been transformed was persuasive, even in the company of men that wanted to do everything they could to deny Jesus. Now, how ironic that upon reaching an impasse concerning Jesus, whether he was a man from God or not, a group of the highest religiously educated men in all of Israel, what do they do? They turn to a blind man who has no formal education, who had no religious training, who's been banned from the temple and synagogue from birth, they ask him for his opinion. Well, we've got this division. Well, what do you say, bro? The best this man can muster here is a confession that Jesus, all things considered, he's never seen him, he knows his name, but it's just logical, right, that he had to be a prophet. His testimony expands. But verse 18, the Jews did not believe concerning him that he had been blind and received his sight until they called the parents of him who had received his sight. And they, they asked them saying, is this your son whom you say was born blind? How then does he now see? <laughs> the Pharisees here are so stern in their rejection of Jesus that they find it here easier to deny the miracle ever happened than accept the possibility of there being a miracle worker. In an attempt to discredit this man, as well as his claim, they call the man's parents to testify. Not only do they want confirmation that he's actually their son, but here they're challenging the, the account the medical papers, that the man had been born blind. Now keep in mind, in the presence of a miraculous transformation, if you fail to even consider the who behind it all, all that will remain is the mystery of how. They reject the miracle they can't explain how. They're stuck. How does this man see? Sadly, only considering the effects without ever taking the time to imagine a cause, a who, will lead you to only greater mystery and in the end, more and more profound ignorance. Case in point, we have entire academic studies trying to explain the origins of the universe 
and honestly ridiculous, unscientific, contradictory to mathematics. The theory of evolution doesn't pass the smell test in the brightest mind. And why? They refuse to acknowledge even the possibility of a who behind it all. And when that happens, you're only left with a greater mystery of how, and that leads you to some really dumb theories. Well, verse 20, his parents answered them and said, we know that this is our son. We're also very aware that he was born blind, but by what means he now sees, we do not know, or who opened his eyes, we do not know. He is of age, ask him, he will speak for himself. Now, there is no doubt that the man's parents are being honest. Yes, he's our son. Yes, he was born blind. How that happened or who did it, we've got no idea. It's all truths. John, though, immediately adds a measure of commentary, as he often does, so that we know there's a bit more going on below the surface. In fact, the approach of the man's parents sought to distance themselves from their son. The commentary, verses 22 and 23, John tells us that his parents said these things. Why? Because they feared the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone confessed that Jesus was Christ, he would be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said to them, He is of age, ask him. I am sure, confident, that the man's parents had to have been elated, that their son, born blind, had been healed. And yet, they also in the moment understood the ramifications of crossing the religious leaders. John tells us that word had already spread that there would be consequences, severe ones, for anyone who confessed that Jesus was the Christ. These parents feared going too far backing up their son might lead to them being put out of the synagogue. In Jewish culture, the synagogue was the center for all community. All Jewish community. Being put out, or in a more modern context, being excommunicated. It was a serious thing. Aside from the fact that, that, that such a thing would, would alienate, eliminate your ability to worship at the synagogue or attend Sabbath services. Such a position would separate you from your neighbors, your family, your friends. You would be cut off. Beyond that, in some circles, it would even restrict your ability to conduct business in Jewish centers. Because they feared the Jewish leaders, these parents dodged, wading into the controversy by deferring back to their son. He's of age, ask him, was their way of saying that as an adult, they were no longer responsible for him. It's kind of as though they're like, leave us out of it. He's of age. He's an adult. He can speak for himself. Verse 24, so they again called the blind man. As I play the scene out in my mind, I picture an interrogation room where they're calling in and sending out witnesses, right? So they had the blind man in there, and then they sent him out, and then they brought the parents in to try to corroborate the evidence. And now that they've gotten this reaction from the parents, they send them out. They bring the blind man back in. And they said to him, give glory to God. 
We know, and, and this word is, is emphatic, that this man, speaking of Jesus, is a sinner. The phrase we have recorded here, give God the glory, and its first century context, it's actually kind of a, a very official phrase. It possessed a, a specific legal connotation. It would be akin to placing someone under oath, taking his testimony and putting it on the record. What they're saying to the man is we know already that Jesus is a sinner, but we want you to submit sworn testimony confirming it. I should point out this comment, we know that this man is a sinner, should not be seen as evidence that Jesus was a sinner or had committed to any type of, of legitimate sin before God. He hadn't. Instead, what they are confirming is that Jesus had broken their unbiblical Sabbath traditions. And they equated that as being sin, which it wasn't. Well, Jesus, the, the man answered, verse 25, and said, Whether he is a sinner or not, I, I don't know. But one thing I know. You want me to go on the record? Here you go. Though I was blind, now I see. Yeah, I love this man's integrity. And as, as we're going to see this exchange unfold, the man's got quite a bit of grit. Like he's not going to be pushed around. He's not going to capitulate to the pressure or be coerced into making a statement he doesn't fully agree with. To the point of Jesus being a sinner or not, the man here refuses to make a determination. Don't forget, he just knows his name. And concludes he probably was a prophet. He's not going to go on the record making a statement he can't sign his name to. That being said, what he was willing to absolutely go on the record about was the fact that though he was blind, now he could see. Verse 26, then they said to him again, what did he, that being Jesus, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? Again, they're still obsessed with the how. So the man answered them, I told you already. And you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? Like you can sense, can't you, just in the natural reading of it, that the man knows this is a charade. And he's kind of growing tired of it. We've gone over these questions again, man. Oh, are you wanting to become one of his disciples? Is that, is that what's going on? Then, verse 28, they reviled him and said, You are his disciple. But we are Moses' disciple. We know that God spoke to Moses. As for this fellow, Jesus, we do not know where he is from. This word translated, they reviled him. And the Greek, it articulates more than just the cursory reading implies. The verb, and it is a verb, an action tense. It means that what happens here is they start to assault the man verbally. They start to ridicule him. This is abuse. But again, the man shows tenacity. The man's not going to back down for what he knows has already become a hostile hearing. So in response to their admission that they didn't know where Jesus was from, verse 30, the man answered and said to them, 
Well, this is a marvelous thing. That you do not know where he is from. Yet, he opened my eyes. The man is saying here, to a hostile group, your lack of knowledge, or your unbelief, or your pure rejection of a man who has the ability, the power, to heal of blindness, that you don't even know where he's from, that is truly a marvelous thing. In the Greek, the word marvelous can be translated as worthy of pious admiration. The man saying, well, this is a marvelous thing. The host, it oozes, it reeks of sarcasm. The man continues, verse 31, Now we know that God does not hear sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, he hears him, God. Since the world began, it has been unheard of that anyone opened the eyes of one who was born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. Now, how interesting is it that through the exchange that the man has with these skeptical religious leaders about Jesus, in the process of this exchange, he begins to to realize, like he's working through it on his own, he begins to realize who it was he actually encountered. At first, it was just a man, right? All he could affirm that it was a man named Jesus who had healed him of blindness. Then, as he's kind of being pressed, he figures, well, Jesus had to have been a prophet. Now, as he's really thinking through Jesus and this man, his identity, in light of the the religious leader's evident prejudice, not only is he rejecting their premise that Jesus was a sinner, that doesn't even make sense, but he's reconsidering the facts himself. If Jesus, he reasons, was not from God, How could he heal? And more specifically, why would he? Which means that Jesus probably was from God. Like At this point, the man's still not a convert. But his openness to the truth is leading him to an obvious destination. Verse 34, they answered and said to him, You were completely born and sins. And are you teaching us? Tragically, these these proud men resort to insults. They belittle the man. Why? Because they don't want to argue with his theological point. The point he just made was difficult to answer, inconsistent with their position, so they just start attacking him. Then we're told that they cast him out. Consider the blatant illogic in their statement, you were completely born in sins. <laughs> Consider the illogic to that statement in light of the fact that the man was standing before them with sight, that he had been healed. Since they conclude the man's blindness had been caused by either his sin or the sin of his parents, it was therefore the judgment of God The very fact the man was standing before them healed should have been evidence of what? Of God's forgiveness, restoration. They they refute their own argument in the accusation that they make. Sadly, instead of welcoming a sinner into the 
into the fold. They cast him out. The very fear of his parents towards being excommunicated was realized by this man. He began the day as a religious outcast because of his blindness. <laughs> now he ends the day cast out because he's unwilling to exchange what was clearly true to accept a lie that even may have been expedient for him. Well, verse 35, we're told that Jesus heard that they had cast him out. And when he found him, Jesus said, do you believe in the Son of God? Now, that's a very poor translation. It would be better placed more kind of in the personal. It's an invitation. It would be better written, will you believe in the Son of God? And the man answered and said, who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? And in a sense, saying, yes, I just want to know who it is. And Jesus says, you have both seen him, and it is he who is talking to you. Then he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. What a contrast, right? The religious leaders cast him out, but Jesus went and found him. Jesus first heard, word spread, word got to Jesus, what had happened to the man he had just healed. Then it's implied that Jesus stopped immediately what he was doing. And then he goes, he leaves, and he seeks out the man. I wonder, and I don't have an answer to this, I wonder who brought news to Jesus of what had happened. Now don't forget, this man has not seen Jesus. After Jesus caked his eyes in mud and sent him to the pool of Siloam, the man returned to find Jesus long gone. So imagine for just a moment what it would have been like for this man in the context of everything that has now happened when he hears a voice, the voice of Jesus, do you believe? Wait a second. I recognize that voice. That voice, that's familiar to me. I'm even confident that he probably longed to hear that very voice again. The voice that said, go and wash. Initially, he affirms that a man named Jesus healed him. As he considered things, it seemed logical Jesus had to have been a prophet. And in light of that, no question, he had been sent from God. While his understanding was, was undoubtedly limited, the one thing the man knew he could hang his hat on was that though he had been blind, now he could see. And then in verse 37, in response to Jesus' question, do you believe the man refers to him, how? Twice as Lord, Kyrios, Christ, Messiah, before then ultimately choosing to believe to place his full confidence upon Christ. And then we're told that he worshiped him as the Son of God. Verse 39, and Jesus said, For judgment I have come into this world, that those who do not see may see, and that those who see may be made blind. That's heavy. Then some of the Pharisees who were with Jesus heard these words, and don't forget, there had been a division and they said to him, are we blind also? And Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no sin. But now you say, we see, therefore your sin remains. Jesus ends this exchange, kind of wraps up this whole story by declaring 
Something that I think should ruffle a lot of feathers. He declares, for judgment, I have come into the world. Jesus has already said he didn't come into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. But there's a difference between condemnation and what Jesus is referring to here is judgment. You know, in many circles, the idea that Jesus is a judge is not an acceptable version of Jesus will accept. Jesus, some will claim, came into this world to, you know, teach us about love, to bring about peace. That Jesus came to be a great unifier, to accept all people. The problem, though, with this utopian perspective is the reality that Jesus said the exact opposite about himself. The fact is, Jesus came to be the dividing line of all humanity. Jesus is the great divider. There are those who realize their need for sight, like this blind man. And then there are those who resist the admonition. They, they refuse to admit a need, these Pharisees. All in the context of Jesus. And it's one group that Jesus will grant the ability to see, and the other, to the other, that Jesus will grant eternal blindness. All humanity will be divided by Jesus when it's all said and done. In closing, I want to make a few final observations about these verses, about this story. First, if you're genuinely open to the truth, if you're really open to the truth, I want you to know this morning that you'll eventually come to believe in Jesus and worship Him as the Son of God. Well, how, how, do you, how are you so confident of that, Zach? You know, this man did not begin his journey with a complete understanding of who Jesus really was. Right? He just had a name. But as the man weighed the evidence, as the man openly considered what he did know to be true. He had been blind, but now he could see. In the end, he came to see Jesus, not just as his Lord, but as his God. He made a confession. Understand, the evidence of the man's conversion, his faith in Jesus, was the fact that in the very moment he decided to believe, what resulted? The man fell down, and he worshipped Jesus. It doesn't mean that he broke into song. Can we get the worship team out? I'm going to worship Jesus now. Now he attributed honor. He literally prostrated himself on the ground. This man who had started the day blind and begging, he ended the day on his face before a Savior. Not only does the man attribute worship to Jesus, worship that was only reserved for God and God alone. Ironically, a man who had been cast out of formal worship. He falls before Jesus, and what does Jesus do? He accepts the man's worship. Never forget, friend, worship is the most logical and natural reaction to the amazing grace you've been given in Jesus. I'm also struck to this first point by the reality 
that Jesus initiated a work in this man's life, only to then return the very moment he was ready to make a decision. You you see that? I think that's an interesting aspect to our story. You know, Jesus promises in the Scripture, kind of a famous passage, right? Seek, and what? You shall find. Knock, and it will be opened, right? I'd like to kind of add something to that. I also find it to be true that those who seek will be found. Seek and ye shall find. Those who seek will be found. Jesus healed the man of blindness. Miracle one. Then kind of allowed him in this crazy journey the rest of the day and then returned the very moment the man was ready to make an important decision about him. Second observation I want to make is that one of the great evidences that Jesus has transformed your life is when some people accept it. Other people are skeptical and a few become hostile. You know, the reaction to your life tells you a lot about your life. Like, think about this man's experiences and the reactions. Jesus healed him of blindness, and in response, what happens? There are some who are amazed, right? Some of the name, whoa, the dude's been healed. They're amazed at the transformation. Others, though, struggle to make sense of it all. The religious leaders, they actually do everything in their power to deny a transformation had ever happened. And please note, the same three reactions are inevitable when Jesus works in you. There will be some who will recognize the change that has taken place. Man, you're different. And you know what? They'll come and they'll want to know how. How are you so different? What's happened to you, man? Something's changed. You know, the people that come and ask how in that context are the ones who will then be most receptive when you tell them who, not just how. Others, though, whether they be friends or neighbors or family members, will react with a measure of skepticism, maybe even distance themselves. They'll doubt whether a change is even possible. Finally, there will be a few who will reject you entirely. Following Jesus, sometimes there's a tearing apart of friends, of community. Making a decision to follow Jesus sets you onto an opposite path. And as a result, there are some that will revile you. They'll hurl insults at you. They may even cast you out of your friend group. But no, as this man came to see, they were really rejecting Jesus. On the flip side, there's, there's kind of a, a warning to this point. If there are no reactions to your claim of encountering Jesus, did you actually experience a transformation? And if you didn't experience a transformation, have you actually encountered Jesus? Third, Your simple testimony is simply powerful. Like over and over, this man is challenged to explain how he could see. And the fact is the man struggles to provide an answer, doesn't he? I have no idea how. 
miracle mud. I don't know. And in the process, the man just, what does he keep doing? I don't know how, man, but there was this guy, this guy named Jesus. But even when challenged about Jesus, like the man, he doesn't have a really good answer, does he? Eh, maybe he's a prophet. I don't think he's a sinner. That's illogical. Like the man struggles to defend what happened. And then almost in a complete exhaustion, like he answers. He says, man, there's only one thing I know. Like you keep pushing me. I only got one thing for you. I was blind. Now I can see. That's it. Understand, the most profound evidence you have to share of the resurrected Jesus is the fact that while you were blind, you can see. It's the effects on your life you've experienced through a personal encounter. I've mentioned this before. The Apostle Paul is the greatest theologian to have ever lived, second to Jesus. And over and over and over again, when he's in, the, in a crowd, in a dialogue, in an exchange with skeptics, you know what he always reverts back to? He can argue all the theology till he's blue in the face. More often than not, what does he do? He's like, listen, man, I was a Pharisee. I hated Jesus. Hated everything about him. I persecuted the church. My pride was in my religious acumen, my works. And then I was on the road to Damascus. And Jesus knocked me off my donkey. You can translate that however you want. I met Jesus and my life has never been the same. Paul, who could have answered the questions? Gotten into a theological toe-to-toe. Let's get into some apologetics. He goes back to his story. Why? Because you can't argue with a life that's been transformed. You can keep arguing about how, but no one could take what away from the man. He was formerly blind, and now he could see. The fingerprints of the divine were undeniable because they were all over his life. Fourth, people will reject Jesus even in the abundance of evidence. Like, honestly, this may be the saddest reality of our story. While great attempts were made to discredit the man's testimony, the truth was unavoidable. And yet, even with the fact the man could see his testimony, the testimony of his neighbors, his parents' testimony, there were still a group of Pharisees that rejected the truth. A mountain of evidence was still rejected. Their prejudice towards Jesus forced them to reject what was unquestionably true. And I hate to say this, but there are people in your life that will reject Jesus even when you present an abundance of evidence. You see, you can convince them of the facts, but sometimes facts actually don't matter. You see, while a person can admit the truth, They'll reject Jesus, not on intellectual grounds, but like these Pharisees, they will continue to reject Jesus because they understand what the ramifications of accepting him would actually be. And that is something much deeper. Fifth, religious people are often the most hostile towards those who've truly been transformed by Jesus because it's those people that highlight 
emphasize, puts it in their face, the ineffectiveness of their own moral construct. Like in the end, the Pharisees treated this man with disdain because of what his very presence emphasized. Jesus put mud in his eyes and healed him. His very presence was putting dirt in theirs. In actuality, they end up more concerned that Jesus had not followed their petty rules about the Sabbath than the fact a man who had been born blind had been given sight. That's how it ends up being with legalists. Ultimately, the most revealing statement in the chapter was the moment the Pharisees sought to insult the man by saying to him what? You were completely born in sins. Now how telling that they bring up their belief that his blindness had been a consequence of sin while he's standing in front of them completely healed. It's almost as though they're jealous of what had happened in his life and what Jesus had done, been able to do. Aside from this, what's most alarming about that statement is what it reveals about themselves. Think about this for a moment. This snarky remark made it clear what? They had forgotten they were also completely born in sins. You know, the hallmark of religion is when a person becomes fixated by the sin in someone else's life at the expense of recognizing the sin in their own. Finally, the miracle of healing the blind man intended to illustrate the effects sin had on the religious leader's ability to see. You know, aside from the practical work Jesus performed in the man's life, I believe the entire purpose of the miracle was Jesus' attempt to get the religious leaders to see the truth in front of them, a truth they were continuing to reject. The whole point of the exchange had more to do with this man, which explains why this all happened the way that it did. In order to illustrate their willful ignorance to the very sermon that had happened just before this, in light of a woman they had caught in adultery and they brought hoping to stone, Jesus does what? He heals a man born blind. He then gives the religious leaders time to interact with such a man. Then Jesus comes back, accepts the man's worship, and makes a point to the religious leaders, connects the dots, so to speak, by making an important correlation between sin and their spiritual blindness. See that at the end of the chapter? In response to the Pharisees' questions, are we blind also? Jesus says, if you were blind, you would have no sin, but now you say we see, therefore your sin remains. You see, since their practical theology presented blindness as a consequence of sin, asking this question, are we blind also, reveals the fact that the religious leaders in context understood the larger point Jesus was trying to make. The fundamental reason these men were rejecting Jesus was because they were unwilling to admit their need of a savior for sin. Their sin had blinded them of the reality of their own need. Because they couldn't even admit they were blind, Jesus could do nothing for them. Pertaining to this passage, famed preacher Charles Spurgeon, he once said, take a homely illustration from myself. 
I used to be very backward and using spectacles for some time because I could almost see without them. And I did not wish to be an old gentleman too soon. But now that I can't read my notes without wearing spectacles, I put them on without a moment's hesitation. And I do not care whether you think me old or not. So when a man comes to feel thoroughly guilty, he does not mind depending upon God. Here's the grand lesson behind this particular story. Jesus can only heal a man or a woman who will admit they're blind. He can only grant sight to the person who recognizes their inability to see and desires His supernatural intervention. This morning, every one of us here will fall into one of two categories. Those who continually see their need for a Savior and those who choose to remain blind to that reality. The first will embark on a journey that will lead to Jesus, the light of the world. The latter will grow hardened in their rejection of Jesus and continue their journey into, sadly, greater darkness. And so, Father Lord, with 